This episode is sponsored by Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenums might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenums, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums, to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself, and Dr. Fitz. Started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE slash board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine, where we try to go over the high yield orthopedic surgery topics to get you ready for the exam. You know, that's all we do. And we just talk about stuff. We hope that you all are enjoying these episodes. If this is your first time, hit the subscribe button. And after the episode, please just quickly go and leave us a review in iTunes or Stitcher or however you listen to us. And also, please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're trying to get a thousand subscribers and we are so close. We could really use your help. All right. Until next time. Enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And we think we can move on to some um, some ankylosing spondylitis. So at least when it regards to the spine, I think we touched a little bit on ankylosing spondylitis in our basic science section, but we will uh, circle back around now for the spine. So what is ankylosing spondylitis? Uh, it's a seronegative inflammatory uh, arthropathy affecting the spine uh, and really all of the axial skeleton. We see it uh, more, I think I just remember more questions on ankylosing spondylitis referring more to the kind of sacroiliitis and fusion of the lumbar spine that you get on like a pelvis x-ray. Um, but it can affect the entire uh, axial skeleton. And um, what really like why it's called ankylosing um, is because you have uh, these bony erosions that lead to bone formation and the anthesis are the uh, affected areas. And um, it's like an anthesiopathy and you have the classic uh, just appearance of a uh, ankylosing spondylitis spine where it looks more kind of bamboo-like in nature. Uh, and you can see that really, really clearly on, on the lumbar spine. But then once you look at the C-spine x-rays, it honestly, it just looks like a, a fused tube of uh, vertebral bodies with preserved joint spaces. And I think that's the key there is you have some preserved joint spaces. And then, like I said before, the sac uh, sacroiliitis is really common with these patients. And um, I said that it's seronegative. So the serum markers that you check for um, may not, like the, the RA 
uh, and or the rheumatoid factor and those sort of things may not actually show up in patients with it. So yeah, um, let's say you, you're you think you have a patient with ankylosing spondylitis and they they fall and they have neck pain, but a negative x-ray. Do you say, all right, see you later, you're good to go, <laughs> or do you have to do anything more? No, you, you need to you need to do some more, um, especially in these patients with ankylosing spondylitis. You know, you got to have neck pain, and even though the x-rays are negative, you need to consider doing some more advanced imaging, like getting a CT scan, um, some get an MRI as well. And with these, you, have, you really have to have a high suspicion for an occult fracture happening, because with these patients, you know, their fractures are unstable, and they tend to, you know, cross all three columns and can lead to spinal instability. Um, and missed fractures in these patients can have bad consequences as well as, you know, neurological compromise. So in these patients that have this ankylosing spondylitis, you, you have to have a high uh, index of suspicion. Um, and, you know, if you miss this, it can, it can be really bad for these patients. Um, and uh, I know we just, you just briefly mentioned this, um, but what is a positive lab finding in a patient with ankylosing spondylitis? They will have a positive HLA B27. So that is that is the like uh, key laboratory finding. Whether you, they give it to you in a question stem, they say, uh, "Here's an X-ray. Patient has neck pain and a positive HLA B27. What's the diagnosis?" Um, or they'll say, "Here's a patient with this bamboo-looking spine." Um, what lab finding would you expect to be positive? Again, HLA B27 is positive in over 95% of these patients. So that's, that's the uh, lab you're looking for, but not necessarily like rheumatoid factor or ANA or other rheumatologic labs that they're going to be searching for. Um, and you, you went over uh, kind of findings on uh, x-ray uh, in a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, but what about ankylosing spondylitis? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at a sagittal film on these patients, they may have kind of that kyphotic um, deformity. Um, they can also have ossification of their cervical spine disc space. Like you mentioned a little bit earlier, they can have sacroiliitis. So if you look at an AP of the pelvis, you may see a lot of sclerosis. Sometimes those joints are like fused too. Um, like, you know, yeah. we've had patients that have had trauma, had a trauma, and they end up having like a CT abdomen pelvis. And, you know, you scroll through it just just to make sure you know you go through all the imaging and look through some of those axials, and those those joints are just fused. Um, uh, so you know that kind of clues you into something else may be going on, and also kind of that bamboo spine um, that you were uh, discussing about a little bit earlier. And these patients can also have marginal syndesmophytes. Um, and uh, just Googling what marginal syndesmophyte is, just just because many of you may not know what that is, um, the Google the Google um, definition says a marginal syndesmophyte has its origin at the edge or margin of a vertebral body and extends to the margin of the adjacent vertebral body. Um, so again, that's one of the things that you can note and see in patients with this ankylosing spondylitis. Now, one of the things that I guess is can be a little close to um, ankylosing spondylitis. One of the things that if you have a patient with this and they have like some similar neck trauma that we were talking about earlier, that you just want to be able to differentiate what you would see between um, ankylosing spondylitis and this next condition, which we call DISH. Uh, but what are some of the things that you note on x-ray in the patient with diffuse idiopathic 
a skeletal hyperostosis or DISH? Uh, DISH and ankylosing spondylitis are very commonly tested together um, or not tested together because they're the same thing, but tested because they can get confusing and what you may think is ankylosing spondylitis is actually DISH and vice versa. And the biggest difference between the two is, uh, like you said, with AS, you have marginal syndesmophytes, but in DISH, you have non-marginal syndesmophytes. So you, um, so they, those syndesmophytes are not going to be connecting to each other necessarily, but you can have very large osteophytes protruding from the vertebral bodies, but they're not going to connect most of the time from one disc or one uh, vertebral body to the next. And what happens is they have this kind of flowing candle wax appearance uh, to it, whereas uh, ankylosing spondylitis has that nice smooth border of a bamboo spine. And then uh, people with DISH don't have any SI joint involvement. So if you're looking at a uh, either a anterior of the lumbar spine or AP pelvis, and they're kind of trying to get you to choose between AS or DISH, look at the SI joints. And the SI joints will be normal in DISH, but abnormal in ankylosing spondylitis. And uh, like you briefly talked about before, uh, you, you're concerned about a patient who has neck pain after a fall with ankylosing spondylitis, but what about DISH? Are you just as concerned or not as much? Yep. Same thing. You know, if you miss these injuries, they can just be devastating injuries. And, you know, these, anytime you have patients with DISH or ankylosing spondylitis, you know, they have high rates of neurological injury, um, especially because, you know, a lot of that bone is necessarily fused, but um, it is, um, you know, these, these fractures are, are generally unstable and can uh, commonly extend across all three columns. So just note that anytime you have a patient with dish or ankylosing spondylitis who has any type of traumatic event, any complaint of neck or back pain, that you should have a high index of suspicion um, that they may have something else going on that direction may be an occult fracture. Now, what is a treatment for a patient with ankylosing spondylitis after fall with neurological def deficits? Uh, these patients, they are going to need a decompression because they have neurological deficits. So whether that's bony or other soft tissue decompression, and then they need a long fusion. So you're not just fusing like in a, in a normal spine, you may just fuse that level that's affected because the rest of the spine is healthy. Uh, but in these patients, uh, you need long stabilization. So you may go three or four levels above and three or four levels below to help stabilize and uh, give it the best chance of fusing because it's abnormal um, uh, bone. It's an abnormal physiology and it needs more stabilization compared to normal bone. And what are some of the surgical options in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis and a combined uh, kyphotic deformity? Yeah. So, you know, these patients that, you know, we talked about a little bit earlier that they have this kyphotic deformity. And so something you can do to help um, decrease that kyphotic uh, deformity and restore some of the sagittal balance or restore some of that lower dorsus is going to be an anterior opening wedge osteotomy or pedicle subtraction osteotomies. And kind of those are exactly what you think of. So you think of an anterior opening osteotomy to help, um, increase some of that lordosis, or you can take the pedicles out 
and that'll also help increase some of the low doses and restore some of the sagittal balance. So those are both options. You know, if you're looking at a test answer and they have a really, really bad deformity, um, just know that. And I don't know if you all can hear it right now, but my dog is drinking some water behind me. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear that, but if you could, that's what that was. Um, so moving forth, what is a surgical option for a patient with a fixed C-spine flexion deformity, like for example, the chin on chest deformity. And there was a video going around not too long. It was maybe like three or four months ago. Um, I think it was an, uh, like an Asian patient who had literally his chin was on his chest and he was just looking down his entire life. And um, they ended up doing, you know, a lot of different surgeries for him and you know, ended up getting it to where he could actually look, look forward. And uh, it was a cool, it was a cool video, but anyways, nonetheless, what are some of the surgical options in patients with a fixed C-spine flexion deformity? Yeah. And that's kind of what you were just talking about with the kyphotic deformity in these patients. I, I mean, a C-spine inflection is more kyphotic than a C-spine in extension. And so uh, you're considering more osteotomies and decompressions. And uh, one thing to note is uh, looking at the X-ray is obviously going to tell you where to do the osteotomy infusion, but if you can, uh, it may be actually more beneficial to do it in the lower C-spine, like C7-T1 area, because then you're avoiding injury to the vertebral artery, because anytime you need to make uh, an osteotomy for full compression or full uh, correction, um, you you're getting very close to the, both of the vertebral arteries. And if yeah. you bag one of them, you bag one of them and it's, it's not good. I'm not encouraging no. it, but it's not the end of the world. But if you get both of them, then you're, then you're looking at bad news. And so if you can do it below the entrance of the vertebral artery, which I think is right at C6, um, you can, uh, hopefully correct that with like a, a pedicle subtraction osteotomy that you were talking about before, or some sort of anterior opening uh, osteotomy. And then um, if possible, you can go posterior and do a C-spine laminectomy plus a osteotomy and a fusion. And you're, uh, you're decreasing or you're, you're taking away that posterior bone so that it has room to flex or, or to extend uh Sorry, I'm, I'm getting my words confused because I'm no worries. like getting, uh, I'm using my hands to kind of show exactly what I'm thinking. And it, I know yeah. that the listener can't see it, but it makes <laughs> sense to me. So let me restart that. The, if you take out the posterior bone, then you're making more room for the C-spine to extend because you're contracting the posterior element. So if you take out that posterior bone, you're creating more space for that. And then you can fuse it posteriorly. Yeah. Um, and one thing uh, uh, that you can see in uh, these abnormal spines is something called an ossified posterior longitudinal ligament or OPLL. Um, what is it? And uh, what's the treatment if they're symptomatic because of it? Yeah, so this ossified posterior longitudinal ligament is pretty is pretty much exactly what it says. So it has um, ectopic ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, and kind of some of the things that they'll show you on this will be like a sagittal CT scan, and you'll just see a lot of ossification right behind the vertebral bodies. And obviously, not obviously, but this is also one of the things that can lead you to cervical myelopathy, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. So it's not can only be they can. Um, 
not only just be due to um, to cervical spondylosis, but it can also be due to a posterior longitudinal ligament that is ossified. It can be due to an uh, epidural um, uh, hematoma or infection that we were talking about a little bit earlier. But anyway, so um, ossified posterior longitudinal ligament. And so if this is symptomatic, uh, you can kind of look at it in you know two different things. One, you can go about the posterior approach and the other one's the anterior approach. So if you're going to take a posterior approach to treat an ossified posterior longitudinal ligament, um, you know, this is working by pretty much you have an indirect spinal cord decompression, right? Because uh, um, posterior longitudinal ligament is is taking up space anteriorly and you're doing something posteriorly to increase the space for the spinal cord. And for in order to go posteriorly, you need either a lordotic or a neutral alignment of the cervical spine. So a laminectomy alone, where you remove the lamina that you uh, elegantly described a little bit earlier, which is that bone in between the um, spinous process and the transverse process, that, that bone kind of, that kind of connects those. Um, a laminectomy alone is not due, uh, is not done um, due to post-laminectomy kyphosis. If you do a laminectomy, uh, a laminectomy with fusion can be performed. Um, and typically this is done with instrumentation. And you can also do a laminoplasty. But again, this is something that you likely don't do in a kyphotic spine. So those are the posterior approaches that you can use for treating an, a posterior longitudinal ligament. You can also do an anterior approach and you can have the ACDF and the ACCF, uh, anti-cervical disectomy with fusion or anterior cervical corpectomy with fusion. Uh, but one thing to know about these is they have a higher incidence of a dural leak and an OPLL is associated with dural ossification. So just know that you have a higher incidence with the dural leak if you go through the anterior approach. And I swear, I think we mentioned this at least three times now. We yeah. mentioned it, we mentioned this, I think, like at the beginning of sports and at the beginning of some other thing, but just for repetition's sake, um, oh, well, I put it right here. Yes, this is the third time. <laughs> uh, what is a burner or a stinger? A burner or a stinger is a transient neuropraxia that's uh, associated with stretching of the brachial plexus, but no actual. Uh, long-term damage to it or injury to it. It's usually unilateral burning. They'll have subjective weakness. Um, but it's, it is something that once symptoms resolve and you've ruled out that the patient does not have a concussion at the same time, these patients can return uh, to play uh, same day. But obviously with the burner and her stinger, it is affecting the C-spine, which is obviously very close to the head. So anytime you're evaluating a burner or a stinger, you have to evaluate for uh, concussion at the same time. And obviously if the patient has, or the athlete has a concussion, then you're taking them out for the game and you're beginning that post-concussive protocol and likely keeping them out for a week or more to allow for neurologic recovery. Uh, so uh, that's a good kind of transition into C-spine trauma because a burner or a stinger is not necessarily uh, a traumatic thing that results in long-term uh, disability, but other C-spine trauma can. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of our OITE slash board review series. We hope that this is helpful. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email us at nailedortho at gmail.com. Let us know how we can make this better. Or, you know, if there's something that we got wrong or something that you think we need to talk about, you can also email us and let us know that. 
please again put your info in if you want to stay updated for when we have the OICE podcast companion book for the series come out so until next episode this episode is sponsored by locum story have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine whether you are burned out need a change of pace or are looking to supplement your income locum tenems might be the solution for you and if you're considering locum tenems either full-time or on the side you probably have a question or two or 20 fortunately locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends from your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like what is locum tenums to more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have first-hand locums experience. Locumstory.com is a perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums.